Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Rick. I'm the preacher here. I've been gone a little while. I uh, took a study break in the month of July. And the first thing I want to do coming back is thank Taylor Walling, who I thought did an outstanding job preaching in my absence. I was able to watch online every single sermon, sometimes in other states and once even in another country. And every single week he encouraged me, he taught me, he blessed me. I'm very grateful for Taylor. And while he was preaching, as I said, I was on a study break and it really blessed me. I was able to speak at several different churches, attend a couple of conferences that taught me and blessed me. And then I'll be honest, at the very end of the month, my wife and I combined a special birthday with a special anniversary, and we took a 10-day trip to the United Kingdom. We spent three days in London, and then we spent a week in Scotland, and it was magnificent. We saw some beautiful country. I might have played a round or two of golf. I might have eaten a scone or two. And if you don't know what a scone is, simple, a scone is a biscuit. But the British are brilliant. If you call it a biscuit, you buy three for a dollar. But if you call it something sophisticated like a scone, then you buy one for three dollars. So we ate some scones and jam and we enjoyed some fabulous weather. The whole week that we were in Scotland, the weather never got above 65 degrees. So don't doubt that I love you. Because I knew what the weather was here when I got on that plane Friday to come back home. But it was time to come be with my church family I love so much. And the final thing the study break allowed me to do was do some serious preparation for the series I'm starting today. There are certain series you preach where you just need a little more time. Uh, Like when I taught through the book of Revelation or when I did a series a couple of years ago on the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those series where I have spent many hours and frankly many months getting ready for what I'm only going to teach in four weeks. Because we're going to talk for the next four weeks about God's design for our sexuality. Now preachers have long known there are three ways to guarantee a big crowd at church. One is to announce you are going to do a sermon on sex. A second is to announce you're going to do a sermon on the end times. And if you really want a big crowd, announce that you're going to do a sermon. Will there be sex in the end times? The irony is that church is typically the last place that addresses the topic of sexuality. We usually allow other forums and venues to deal with that issue. And that's unfortunate because God has a lot to say about sexuality. The topic of sex is all over the Bible, and we should never be hesitant to talk a lot about anything that God talks a lot about. So up front, I just want you to know this series will unapologetically examine the subject of sexuality through the lens of the Bible. Now, right away, I know that's where I will lose some of you. Because some of you don't believe the Bible is God's book. You don't receive it as an authoritative, inspired revelation. I understand that. And so just because I say the Bible says something doesn't make it right or wrong to you. And some of you, honestly, you pick and choose what you like from the Bible. Some parts of it you follow and some parts you just ignore. I, I understand that too. But I'm assuming that most of you receive the Bible as an authoritative revelation from God... That points us to his son, Jesus, 
and you want to know what it says. Now, is the Bible reliable? Is it the Word of God? Can I trust it? Those are legitimate questions, and they deserve sermons, but not today. This series is especially for those of you that really do have a high view of the Bible, and you want to know more about what it says about sexuality. So, let's get out our Bibles. Let's go to the very beginning. Somebody once said you should start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. And it doesn't take one chapter for the Bible to bring up the subject of sexuality. Here's what we read at the end of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So right off the bat, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we learn something important. Sex is from God. We were created by God as specifically sexual beings. And God said, this is good. Our sexuality reflects the image and the likeness of God. In other words, our maleness and our femaleness help make God more knowable and reveal something important about His character. So our sexuality is a good thing. It is a gift from God that needs to be stewarded like all of God's gifts To the glory of God. So the very first thing we learn is that sex is from God. And the very next thing we learn is how to steward our sexuality to His glory. So in the very next chapter of the Bible, we're given insight into what that stewardship entails. So God has made the man. He's shown him all the animals to show him there's nothing like him yet made. And then he goes to sleep. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why. And by the way, every title of my sermon in this series, it comes straight from the Bible. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That is why. Sex is God's idea. He's not embarrassed by it. He's not ashamed of it. God doesn't turn his eyes when a husband and a wife have sex and say, well, go ahead if you have to. Did you know there's an entire book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon that simply celebrates sexual attraction between a husband and a wife? Some of you didn't know that, and you're going to go read your Old Testament for the first time in your lives. So we've gone two chapters, and we've already learned two things. God is for sex, and sex is for marriage. Sex was designed 
and gifted by God to celebrate and to submit a husband and a wife's pursuit of oneness. Have you ever considered that out of all of God's creatures, man and woman alone were designed by the Creator to relate sexually face to face? And the word the Bible uses for this over and over is the word know. A man knows his wife. Because by design, something very deep and wonderful and mystical is happening in sex. A husband and a wife are exposing themselves in a way they never have before. They are making themselves more vulnerable than they've ever made themselves before. They're being more transparent than they've ever been before. So they can pursue deep, authentic, soul-level intimacy. Because see, the act of sex does more than just connect body parts. It can't be reduced to that. Sex connects husband and wife at the soul level. And that is why sexual misconduct produces such powerful wounds. And you know this is true even if you don't buy the Bible. That when you find out your partner has been sexually unfaithful to you, you are powerfully pained. That if you were the victim of sexual abuse, you have a scar that can be hard to deal with for years. I can tell you in 37 years of being a preacher... The number one regret I hear more than any other is almost always about a sexual matter. So the reason the Bible restricts sexual intimacy to marriage is not because it has a low view of sex, but because it has such a high view of what sex was intended for. Sex is from God. So don't cheapen it and make it less than what it is. That's the problem I have with uh, sex education curriculum in public schools. It's not that they say too much. It's that they say too little. They just deal with the physical. This is this and that is that. and You put it together and you call it sex. Sex is so much more than that. It's so much more transcendent, so much more powerful, so much more beautiful, so much more mystical. And so much more capable of powerfully damaging souls when it's not used the way it was designed. And that is why, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to say several things in this sermon that some of you are going to push back on. Here's number one. That is why the Bible always refers to sexual activity outside of the lifelong commitment of heterosexual marriage as sin. Always. Now, you can push back on that. You can send me an email and disagree. That's okay. 
But what you cannot do is attach to that email one single verse in the Bible where God endorses sex outside of the lifelong commitment of heterosexual marriage. The Bible is unilateral and univocal about that. Now, the culture written. Our culture sees no problem with giving your body to someone you have no intention of giving your heart and your soul to. But we've already seen at the start of the Bible, the design of sex was such that you can't experience the intimacy it was intended to help us pursue apart from fidelity. Sex outside of marriage says, I want part of you, but I don't want all of you. I want nakedness, but I don't want knowledge. But the Creator didn't design us so that we could separate physical oneness from the oneness of everything else that we are as human beings in the image of God without serious consequences. And by the way, even secular research affirms this. Cal State University has a journal called the Journal for Sex Research where they did this big study. And they said people that engage in casual sex have a much lower uh, sense of well-being, much higher sense of anxiety, and much more likely to deal with depression. We talk about God's wrath is when He punishes us for our sins. In the Bible... More often, perhaps, God's wrath is where we're punished because or by our sins. When we step outside of God's design, we hurt ourselves. And we hurt other people. Because sex apart from pledged fidelity, sex where it divorces a body from a soul, gets outside of the design... And people get hurt. They really, really get hurt. So, for those of you listening to me right now, who are having sex with someone you're not married to, this is God's word to you this morning. Keep your hands off of someone else's soul. You do not have His blessing to tamper with the health of their soul because you want their body. And I have a special word right now to those of you that aren't married yet. I know the culture says you've got to have a test drive. But I've been on the other end of that so many times. I don't want to make anybody feel guilty right now. But I want especially you young ladies to understand something. When you sleep with your boyfriend, what you're saying to him, what you're teaching him, what you're actually discipling him to think is that you can separate sex from commitment. They don't go together. And if that's true before you get married, 
Why is it not still true after you get married? And I know some of you right now are thinking, that's crazy talk. How can you expect only married people to have sex? Well, that raises a bigger issue and a bigger question. And by the way, this conversation's not new. The church was birthed in a culture that thought just like our culture. That you have to have sex and bodies and souls aren't related. Here's what Paul said to the church in 1 Thessalonians. It is God's will. Okay, I'm going to read that again. It is God's will. I'm going to read that one more time because some of you still didn't get it. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What does that mean? That you should avoid sexual immorality. What does that mean? That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. See, Paul says that when your body controls your sexual ethic, when all it's about is just giving my body what it wants, you don't know God. You don't understand God. You don't understand His heart. You don't understand how He made you and what He wants for you. You don't know God. When your desire for sex dominates your ethic... And you decide what's right or wrong based on how you want to have sex. You don't know God. You see, it's no longer about sex. Now it's about idolatry. Your view of sex is too low because your view of sex is too high. You see, here's the thing. Sex is not God. And the problem with ignoring God's design... For sex is that it becomes less important than it ought to be because it became more important than it ought to be. Let me explain. So there was this recent book uh, called Premarital Sex in America. And the authors interviewed thousands of young people in the generation called millennials. And they came to two conclusions that most millennials hold. Here's conclusion number one. Sex is no big deal. Here's conclusion number two. Sex is the only thing that matters. In other words, the basic sexual ethic of this generation is it doesn't matter when you have sex, where you have sex, how you have sex, who you have sex with, but you have to have a lot of sex. And consequently, while this culture will condemn certain behaviors And there are certain politically incorrect things that if you do, you will get uh, castigated on social media. But sexual ethic isn't one of them. We will hardly ever censure sexual behavior. Give you two examples. So a couple of years ago, there was a man who owned an NBA franchise, an older man in his 80s, 
who made comments to his girlfriend that were racist. He got uh, outed and the comments went on social media and he was justly criticized. I'm glad they took his team away. Those comments were totally inappropriate. But his girlfriend was young enough to be his granddaughter. Did I mention that he was married? He's making comments to a mistress that ought to be his granddaughter while he's a married man. And no one called him out about that. Shortly after that, a famous NFL football player was criticized for punishing a child of his too severely. He should have been. That's wrong. But no one called him out for the fact that that child was one of four children he has fathered with four different mothers. And he made the comment, I'm sorry, I want to be a good dad. And something inside me screamed, if you want to be a good dad, stop making babies you don't intend to live with. But you see, we live in a culture that you can call people out on almost anything, but you can't call them out on how they have sex. The gospel, according to Freud, dominates our culture. Freud said that our sex drive is so primal that you have to act on it to be a functioning and flourishing human being. And so sex has replaced God as ultimate in our culture. I know that's a strong statement. But any time you think, I can't be complete without, you have replaced God with something else as ultimate in your life. But, here's the second strong statement I'm about to make. The Bible never depicts sex As a basic human entitlement. And you can push back and send me an email, but you can't attach a verse to it. The Bible never says you have to have sex to be a healthy person. That's not how you were created. Now, if you don't get anything to eat or anything to drink, you're going to the hospital. But nobody has been to the ER because they haven't had sex lately. Nothing in Scripture, this is important, elevates your sexual desire to the place that that determines your identity. Nothing in Scripture says your sex drive determines whether you can be a flourishing human being. Sex is not God. So don't worship it. But we do. Even in the church, in ways that we don't even realize, we have drunk the Kool-Aid of the culture. And we bow down to the altar of sex more than we realize. And the chief way that shows up in the church is we have magnified marriage to a status it cannot deliver. And we have failed to dignify singleness and celibacy. And so next week, the entire sermon, and this sermon is way overdue. I should have preached this years ago. It's going to be devoted to the value and the dignity and the place of honor in the church for singleness. 
Because typically what churches would do with single people is treat them like they're broken. Like they need to get fixed. Like, well, we'll just pray for you that you get your act together so that someday you can be married and then you can be a whole person. And here's the irony. Our faith is built on the foundation of following a man that we say was the most perfect and most complete man who ever lived and he never had sex. I knew it was going to get quiet. We were not meant to worship sex. We were meant to worship God. And not just with our souls, because you can't divorce the two. We're meant to worship God with our souls and with our bodies. Romans chapter 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I realize I'm talking to a lot of different people. Some of you, you're not on the Jesus train. You don't know if you believe all this stuff. I get that. But some of you said you got on. You got on the day you entered into a baptistry. And when you went under that water, you were surrendering everything to Jesus. Your agendas, your finances, your ambitions, your relationships... And your bodies. When you went under that water. You were saying. Jesus you are now Lord. Of my sexuality. But the culture is strong. It seeps in. It did in the church in Corinth. There was a a very blatant example of sexual immorality. That Paul told the church to deal with. And he says some strong things. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who's in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, the Summer Olympics have just started. But some of you might remember a story two years ago during the Winter Olympics when this young man named David Wise won a gold for the United States in freestyle skiing. And the NBC website did a story about him that was rather unique. It noticed that he's a happily married man. He's a devout Christian. In fact, he's considering becoming a pastor later in his life. And like many on the ski scene at tournaments, he doesn't go to the bars He doesn't chase skirts. He's loyal to his wife. But what was most unique about the article was the headline. Alternative lifestyle leads to gold medal. We live in a culture where if you are sexually faithful to your marriage, you're considered living an alternative lifestyle. Well, maybe you are. Jesus was pretty clear. I'm calling you to a narrow way. To follow me is not to go the way most people go. It's a way with boundaries. It's a way with a clear design. It's a way with absolutes. And it's a good way. 
Because the God who designed that way is a good God. And so, uh, Stephen Garber in his book, Visions of Vocations, was talking to a woman that heads something called the Protection Project. It was created with kind of a marriage of Harvard University and Washington, D.C. to help stop human trafficking. And in an interview, she was commenting about how pleased she was with a recent hire, a woman who was a very strong Christian. And he said, you know, it's interesting, this job connecting Harvard and D.C. and human trafficking, we get applicants from the brightest minds, from the brightest schools across the country, but inevitably they come and after three or four months they want to talk to me and they say, you know, it kind of bothers me that we're, we're uh, taking our morality and putting it on someone else. Who are we to say that what we think is wrong sexually is wrong for somebody else? And she says, I don't have time for that. I need people who will come to work for me who know what is right and what is wrong. And what most people in our culture say is, well, I tell you what's right. Just let people love anybody they want any way they want. Let's just let's just let love rule the day. And here's the problem. Love is not God. The Bible never justifies a relationship simply on the basis of love. Nathan the prophet didn't go to see David and said, you slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife. But that's okay as long as you two really love each other. John the Baptist didn't say to Herod, you can't have your brother's wife unless y'all two have really strong feelings for each other. Paul didn't tell the church in Corinth... That man shouldn't be sleeping with that woman unless they really, really, really fall in love. The Bible never sanctifies a relationship just because two people say they love each other. Here's why. Sin has distorted our loves. Now, you know this. You and I love things out of proportion to how they should be loved. We want Things that we should not want. We desire things that the Creator did not intend for us to desire. And so, followers of Jesus let design trump desire. Because we believe that the one who made us loves us and knows what is best for us more than anyone else. Because really, this is not a series about sex. This is a series about worship. Do I surrender to and obey the design of God because I trust the heart of God? He's a good father. Love is not God. But God is love. We've all been affected by sin more than we know. It has distorted our feelings and our desires. That's why I'm going to try not to come across like I'm lecturing you. I'm pointing my fingers at you. 
Every one of us has failed to steward our sexuality perfectly. And you hear what I said? I'm talking to me and to everyone else listening to me right now. We have all failed to perfectly steward the gift of our sexuality. But God loves us where we are, not where we ought to be. And that's one reason He sent Jesus. And I hope one thing comes through loud and clear in this series. The gospel of Jesus is amazingly good news to sexually confused and broken people. The Hebrew writer said chapter 7, Because Jesus lives forever, He'll never stop serving His priest. So He's able always to save those who come to God through Him. Because He always lives asking God to help them. You see, mercy triumphs over judgment. The purpose of this series is not to make you feel bad. And it's not to restrict us. It's to set us free. God's design is a path to joy. It's a path to health. It's a path to wholeness. But it's a narrow path. It's a road less traveled. You remember your Greek mythology? The sirens, these half women, half mermaids that would sit on these rocks and sing such beautiful songs that the sailors would get seduced and attracted and eventually shipwreck their boats and go to destruction. Jason had to get home. How did he get past the sirens? He put Orpheus on the boat who played the harp so beautifully the rocks would dance. And because their hearts and their ears were filled with a better song, they were able to resist the seduction of a distorted song. The music's out there. The culture will overwhelm you with a song. It's not God's design. It promises, but it doesn't deliver. It damages souls. There's a better song. The one that made you, the one that loves you, he really does know what's best for you. He is a good, good father. And that's why he sent Jesus. And when you follow him on that narrow way, and people don't get it, and they ask, you point to his cross and you say, that is why. Let me pray for you. So, Father, we're starting a journey. It's hard. It's not well-traveled. But because of our core conviction that you are good and want what is good for us, we ask you to open up our ears in our minds and especially our hearts to your truth. 
So that we can follow Jesus. So that we can stop hurting souls. Especially our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.